brethren, this society really is coming to an end. I'm sure that most of you know that. And I was tempted to speak on prophecy, but I know trumpets is coming and there's no special thing it does to help you with at this point on that topic. But we certainly have a great increase almost every week. You read about a new state. I think the latest state was Kentucky who established same-sex marriage. Some judge overrules the state legislature quite often and calls for same-sex marriage. Also, a lot of you know, maybe a lot of you don't read as much as some of us who do so much of that, but they're pushing this transgender stuff, and they're having these transgender operations. And your tax dollars are going to pay for apparently increasing thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people that aren't sure who they are, and they want to be a man instead of a woman, or a woman instead of a man, and they're beginning to push for these unisex bathrooms so that everybody can go into everybody's bathroom and all that kind of thing. They're trying to make us all one. Satan wants to wipe out what God has made. He doesn't really like the human race. He wants to wipe it out. We're his potential enemies, of course, as we become members of the God family. So he's trying to destroy it by many means. One way will be the coming drought, famine, disease epidemics, and all that that God is going to allow Satan to bring. And another thing, of course, is going to be the terrible, uh, you know, trouble that we have because of these diseases and things that he brings through these transgender operations and same-sex type activities that bring on venereal disease and even wiping out the marriage institution, if he could, so there wouldn't be as many children born. The final wars, of course, that he stirs up, where the whole world is going to descend to get together to fight Christ, and Christ will descend and crush the armies of this world, and the beast of the false prophet will be taken, and they will be cast together in the lake of fire. That is their reward for fighting God. But up until the end, it will look to many people like that side is winning. The homosexuals will seem to be winning. The transgender movement, all these other things that are bad, will seem to be winning. And many of us will, of course, die before the very end, if it carries on another 10 or 15 years, which it very well will do, before Christ comes back. And we will not be there to see it, but some of you will be there to see it. And you will be persecuted. Some will be hurt physically, thrown in jail, beaten up, and all that kind of thing. But many will not live, and some will die. And we all have to think about death because there's nothing more certain in life than death and taxes, as the old saying goes. And brethren, if you die, or I die, if we die, and our casket is lowered into the earth, and that's one of the things that made me start seeking God when my friend Jimmy Mallett was killed in that wrestling accident. And at the funerals way back when, they used to lower the casket right after the service. Sometimes the mother would stay around and start crying even more because her son was being lowered right down into the ground and she had to watch that. That often took place. But as I saw Jimmy's casket being lowered at the ground, something hit me. And I thought, yes, he and I used to wrestle by the hour. And loving, like little bear cubs rolling around on the Bermuda grass, helping each other enjoy life and spending so much time together doing that very thing that killed him. And I thought, why did God let Jimmy die? I've got to try to figure out what's going on. But as our casket is lowered to the earth, how is God going to judge us? Think, brethren, how is God going to judge you? As you are Lord into the earth, what has your life turned out to be? 
my first lecture, and Mr. Armstrong turned over the whole theology department of Ambassador College to Dr. Herman Hay and me. He wasn't the doctor yet, and I wasn't either, back in the autumn of 1953. And I taught the freshman Bible and, and the sophomore Bible, and the, he taught the third and fourth year Bible. Later, Ted, Ted Armstrong came along and taught second Bible. Others were moved in. Later, just a few months later, I was given the entire speech department of Ambassador College, which I wasn't ready for, but I was given it right after. It was about two years later when I was just first married. And later we started the advanced public speaking and homiletics class, training young ministers. The first lecture that I would give in that class to train the prospective ministers, the leading senior men in Ambassador College, was asking these questions. What is the main quality, what is the main characteristic of a true minister? What is the main thing the church is looking for and God is looking for in a true minister? And the same thing would apply to all of you. What is the main thing God is looking for in one of his children and one of his future kings or priests under Christ? The main quality. I said it's not how good a speaker you are. It's not how good looking you are. It's not how much Bible knowledge you have. It's not your charming personality. It's none of those things. What is it? It goes back to the old saying, and I didn't invent this. I think this comes out of Protestantism, but it's the saying for many preachers, and they've talked about this. It's true around the world. What you are screams at me so loudly, I cannot hear what you are saying. If a minister of God is a hypocrite, if a minister of God is living a bad life, if he is a drunkard, if he is a liar, a big exaggerator, if he is an adulterer, if he's a gambler, if he's all these other things, he should not be there because the people are eventually going to figure that out and what he says, no matter how clever he says what he says or how clever he says it, it's not going to help people near as much as if he practices what he preaches. What you are yells at me so loudly I cannot hear what you're saying. And I tried to teach our young men that as best I could at that time. I couldn't completely overcome all the efforts of Satan, the devil, the world, and everything else, of course. But that's a very important point. So you need to ask yourself, what kind of character do you have? What is your basic character? What are you truly surrendered to God? And you mean it. And can God know? And do you show God that you're surrendered to live by every word of God? Can He, God, really trust you forever? Can we in the church trust you? Can we know that if we baptize you, and most of all, later on, ordain you a deacon or deaconess or hire you in some department of the work, can we know that you will do what you say? Can we know that you will obey the rules? Can we know that you will be loyal? Can we know that you will be clean and pure in the way you live your life? Can we know that you're there to serve others? Are you there to show off and get? Are you going to let down and not work very hard and be unproductive? Can God know these things about you? That's what he's watching for. Can he know these things about me? So each of us needs to ask ourselves these questions. Can he and God in the church trust you even when we're not there? That's a big question. What will you do when no one is there? In Luke 6, verse 46, 
Luke 6 and verse 46 in your Bible, Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Christ is not your Lord unless you do what He says. He makes that very clear through the Bible. We're to obey Him. The word Lord means boss. The word Lord means master. Yet many use that term. How good it is to know the Lord this morning. And they're even preaching on the wrong day. And many of them know better. They're able to read. They know which day is the Sabbath. Many of them know better of a lot of things they're doing. They're taught in these Protestant seminaries that God is really a, not really a person and that the Bible is a myth and full of allegory. And they get up these modern preachers coming out of these seminaries. We call them sometimes the theological cemeteries where the truth is buried. But brethren, they many of them know better. Some of them don't know better. I know that they're just fully deceived. But at any rate, they're teaching people the wrong way of life. And we've got to be sure that we mean what we say. And when we say Lord to God, we know what Lord means. And God says, keep the Sabbath. God says, keep the, keep the Ten Commandments. And all these other things clearly over and over in the Bible. We know that. And we're to do what God says. In Isaiah 66, turn back there if you would, brethren. This is back to Isaiah chapter 66 and beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord... Heaven and earth is, or heaven is my throne, he says, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, God asked? And where is the resting place of my, or the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, says the Lord. But on this one will I look. Here's the one God is going to bless. Here's the one God looks at favorably. On him who is poor out of a contrite spirit. His attitude is humble. He's contrite. He's willing to learn. He's willing to repent. Contrite means sorry. He's willing to turn around and go the other way. He's teachable. He's teachable. He's willing to listen. And who trembles at my word. The person who has a profound respect for this book and sincerely has proved that this is the inspired word of the great God of creation and he's willing to live by every word of this book. That's the one God is looking one, the one who's developing that kind of character. What is character? Write this down, you note takers, if you would. Character is that moral or spiritual force which impels us to integrity. It is, it is exercising the power of the Holy Spirit so that you resist the wrong and you do the right. There are many different definitions of a character. Another definition is one who keeps their character is the, based on the Ten Commandments. And that's true. The Ten Commandments are the revelation of God's character. It shows us how to love God and how to love our fellow man in detail. The Ten Commandments, and they're expounded by the statutes. God's character is that. But this other, let me repeat the first one I gave for your note-takers. True character is that moral or spiritual force with which you repel, which impels you to integrity, and it is exercising the power of the Holy Spirit so that you resist the wrong and do the right. It's something in you that comes from the outside, that spiritual force, and of course it's yielding to God's Spirit, 
so that you have that strength. It's exercising the power of the Holy Spirit so that you resist the wrong and do the right. I think most of you remember, and I won't read it to take time, but back in Isaiah 14, if you're new, write it down. Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, it describes Satan the devil. He's called Lucifer, shining star of the dawn. It describes him as a very brilliant individual, having great beauty, obviously just all kinds of power and beauty and unusual essence of, of, of power and wonderfulness emanating from him. He was a spirit being of great radiance, of great power, of great integrity back then. But he turned and he became the devil. He became the, the, the Satan, which means adversary. He came from shining star of the dawn or light bringer, as Lucifer means, to adversary, which the word Satan means. Why? It shows, he said, I will ascend up to the Most High. I will be like Him. I'm just as good as God. I'm going to fight Him. I'm going to resist Him. I'm going to invent my own ideas of what is right and wrong. And that's the very thing He put in Adam and Eve at the beginning, as you've heard us explain so many times. They begin to invent their own ideas. Satan says, God does not mean what He says. You shall not surely die. Go ahead and take the mixture. It was a mixture the tree of the knowledge, a mixture of good and evil. The world is not all bad. Everything that people do in the world and every idea of Protestant or Catholic Christianity is not bad. That's what fools people. They can see some good in it. But the end result, as Mr. Armstrong said, you can have a wonderful diet, but if you miss just a little bit of arsenic in there or cyanide, it's still going to kill you. It's still going to kill you. A mixture of good and evil. And that's what Satan's been feeding the human race ever since. So we have to have the fear of God, which we've already read about in Isaiah 66, not to take of that mixture, not to follow Satan the devil. He had a lot of power. He must have been a wonderful speaker. He had a lot of personality. Did Satan know the Bible? He began to quote the Bible to Jesus, remember, in the temptation on the mount there in Matthew chapter 4. Of course he knew the Bible. A powerful spirit being, he might have had the whole Bible memorized. He had an awesome mind. It's not a question of what you know, it's what you do. It's a question of how you live. It's a question of what you stand for. Joe and Joanne and Jerry, and, and you know, Jedediah, whatever your name is, all through the congregation, what do you stand for? What is your basic character? Can the great Creator who gives you life and breath right now trust you? Will you really keep His Sabbath, or do you find various excuses not to once in a while? Various excuses to watch some rotten thing on television Friday night. Various excuses to skip church when you're not feeling perfect. Various excuses to get mad at others. And not forgive them as God commands you to do. Various excuses to hate others. Various excuses to lie. Or to greatly exaggerate to get ahead. To make yourself look good and the other guy look bad. Excuses to get mad at the church. And fight the ministry and undermine the work of God. Because your feelings got hurt about something maybe you didn't fully understand. God is watching you. He's watching me. He's watching every one of us. And I've had 62 years full-time in the work to watch various individuals. I've seen ministers 
by the dozens because I was their boss. And I don't want to name names. I'm tempted to do that because I have that in my mind. But I can go right down the line talking about some of those who used to be on the Council of Elders and worldwide. We had the old picture back in the 1969 Envoy, the big college year board, the vice presidents. And all these men were sitting there, and I was too. We all had on our best suits, and I guess we looked very important. But about three-fourths of them fell away. What's wrong? I used to think that it was a great honor to be student body president. Well, it was. And certainly Mr. Ames was student body president at his time, and I was and some of the rest of us. But many of the student body presidents later fell away from the truth. Sometimes the student body president was the one who was the best speaker. He was the best uh, personality and so on. He was more clever on the surface, but he didn't have the deep down conviction to do whatever it took to hang in there no matter what. He looked good on the surface. And so different ones who were part of it. It wasn't me. I didn't appoint him. Mr. Armstrong did with advice from others would recommend different ones, they got appointed. Again, I could name them, but I must not. You can look around and see people that seem to be doing good, or they seem to be important. God knows the heart. Remember when Samuel was guided by God to choose the next king of Israel after Saul turned aside, while they brought these various sons of, uh, what's his name, to Samuel, and he said, this is not the one, this is not the one, this is not the one. Finally, seven of his sons were put before Samuel, who was doing the selecting. And Samuel said, is there any other son? Well, there's one boy. He's young. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Samuel said, bring him. Bring him. He was the one, the least likely one, it says, for God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outside appearance, but God looks on the heart. So, brethren, he has a different way of judging us sometimes than we judge ourselves. But I'm just asking you to check up on yourself and think about this, the importance of character. There are two men I want to talk about a little bit this afternoon. And I want to say before I do that I could mention many other very fine men in the ministry, so I don't want to offend anyone. I could mention Mr. Debar Partin. I could mention Mr. Randy Gregory who was killed. I could mention Mr. Carl Ponder, who died a few years ago. Many other fine ministers who have died. I'm just mentioning those who have died. I don't want to mention those who are still alive. It might go to their head. I'm kidding. But at any rate, we mentioned those who have given their lives to God already. But these two men, Carl McNair and John O'Gwen, back in the 1990s and on, they were not as charming, frankly, or as clever as a few others, there was the other guy who helped split the church in 1998. He was more clever. He was more charming. But these two men were more humble. They were more dedicated to serving God's people. And they were filled with God's Spirit a lot more than the other guy did, who had a better personality, who was more charming and more clever. They hung in there. They had the fear of God and they wanted to do what was right no matter what. I got to know both of them very, very well because, of course, Carl McNair was my brother-in-law, my wife's younger brother at that time. And Mr. John O'Gwen was so dedicated that I had him selected to take my place a number of years ago if something happened to me. 
one of the best teachers and preachers and writers that we've ever had. We still read his correspondence course. Some of you still get his old tapes. Extremely dedicated and helpful and loving to people. But they were willing to be kicked out, which we all were. We had to lose the, the offices we had in the, in the administration building. We had no salary for weeks. We had no certainty the work would continue. When they took it over, the bad guys followed a couple more charming individuals and kicked us out. But they stayed, and many others stayed, of course, at that time, such as Dr. Fall and many other leading men were with us and stayed loyal right down the line. Mr. Weston, Mr. Millich, Mr. Fannin, many other dedicated men stayed right with the church, and they said, God is going to bring most of the ministry and most of the people with you, Dr. Meredith. I said, well, I don't know that. I hope that will happen. Well, that did happen. About 70 to 75% did eventually come to us. But we didn't know that. We had to do what was right no matter what. But they were put to the test. And many of the people, of course, did not understand. And they followed the bad guys. And eventually they split, as some said, seven or eight different ways. I could describe the names, but again, I shouldn't. At least seven different splits came from those men that left us. And they began to leave each other. And one real full highfalutin guy, when he left us, went with one of them. And then he left them, and then he used the same language. It kind of amused me because he used exactly the same phraseology in attacking them as he had used in attacking me. So, so we had a standard attack procedure. He was a good attack dog. He's good at attacking, but he's not good at building and helping. So both of these men exercise character. They work hard. Carl McNair was constantly out working and visiting and helping and building the work and helping people. I think I've told you before how Mr. Lambert Greer's brother, Dean Greer, who was a, later a very successful, and is now, I think, very successful businessman, was trained for a while under Carl McNair. And he told me the story about how Carl visited continually all over the place, all the time, very zealous. And they went to this one lady's home, a farm lady, and she had two or three other ladies. They had this big, long table, and they were all shucking peas. Well, I know some of our old-time ministers might have come in and said, Well, I'm here, the great one. You women all sit down. I'm going to teach you the truth. Well, that wouldn't necessarily have been bad. But Carl McNair was so humble that he grew up on the farm. He simply asked for an apron, and he stood right between the ladies shucking peas. And as he was shucking peas with them, then he counseled the women and counseled the lady of the house. A lot of them thought about that. He was the big shot. He came in to help them and to serve them. And that was the way he approached things quite often. To help, to give, to serve. Not to say, do you know who's important here? Do you know who's in charge here? This type of thing. Mr. John O'Gwen was the same way. And he had a wonderful ability to explain and expound the Bible and wrote the wonderful correspondence course and so on that helped so many of us. And he drove all over the South. I used to call him the the uh, the the uh, director of the of the confederacy <laughs> he was all over the south and all over where the confederacy used to be why he was in charge of most of the south for a number of years they had wonderful work ethic they worked hard they were clean in their lives they were never accused of drunkenness of theft of adultery of lying or cheating or, or anything like that they were clean and they were zealous in their Bible study, in their prayer, obviously, and so on. 
Both of them had a great deal of humility and they had the fear of God. Brethren, those things describe character, the character you want to have and the character I want to have. They stood for something. They stood for something. They stood for God. They stood for Jesus Christ all day long. And they had godly habits in their work. They had a good family and in their family life and in their self-discipline, as I said, because they got up and they worked and worked and worked and helped build God's work and weren't lazy. The habits of regular prayer and study and meditation and fasting, I know they had that because I knew them very, very well in case they talked about those things. One thing I'll mention that I'm sure they did too, but one I don't want to mention myself because I'm sure they were just as good and perhaps better than I at most of these things. But I had to learn early on when I came to Ambassador College and we all lived together. Most of all, the men lived in one place, the third floor of Mayfair, which became the student dorm. And the only girl, Betty Bates, we lived on the third floor and Betty lived down on the first floor with Annie Mann, who was the... the uh, sort of the guidance counselor for everybody, men and women. And so she had Betty live right with her in an apartment. They became good friends. So she was well watched over from us evil men. We were all up on the third floor. But anyway, on the third floor when I would get up in the morning, and I'd been growing up in a city, of course, a small city, and didn't usually get up till 7 or 7.30. I'd get up early before 7 or even 6.30 sometimes, and everybody would be gone. I'd go down to the bathroom, I'd look in the shower, look in the toilet stalls, no one was there. Where is everybody? And I finally began to ask around and found out they were all in their prayer place. Almost everyone on the third floor had his place. The McNair boys had a place they shared back under the eaves of the, of the building there. And then I think one fellow went out on the balcony on the fire escape and prayed out there most of the time he could. Another fellow went down at the far end of the, uh, I think that was Dr. A, at the far end of the basement. And then there were some other closets and places. I had to look all over. Finally, I found this broom closet at the very bottom of the stairs. You kind of went down the stairs and turned, and right in that area was a little broom closet, just big enough where I could pray in the pitch darkness. But I had to bring some newspapers in, not many, but just a couple, so my... My pants didn't get too dirty on the concrete floor, weren't quite as hard, and I'd pray in that broom closet. And I learned to pray every morning and talk to God. But during those first few months, I can't say at what point, but brethren, basically from that time on, because the other guys did that, and I hope all of you did that, that's the only reason I'm bringing it up, I learned to pray before you eat. I never ate breakfast virtually after that, just a few times a year. Very seldom eat breakfast until I prayed. I get up, I go to the bathroom, I wash my face, I, sh I shower or wash my face. I usually shower the previous evening and shave and comb my hair. I have on my prayer pants, I call them, so little pants and a robe. And then I pray so I don't mess up my suit. And uh, Bueno's sitting here. He sees my prayer pants and my, my stuff. And I try and I save my nice suit till later. But I put on my prayer pants and robe and then I go and pray. And I don't want anything to interrupt that. I don't want a phone call. Most people don't call that time of day. 
and I don't go read the paper to get my mind on that. I don't want my mind on anything else. I want my mind on the Creator God who gives us life and breath. And I start to pray. I hardly ever want to leave that prayer room wherever I pray until I prayed for at least 20 or 30 minutes, preferably over 30 minutes, but I'm not want to brag one way or the other about that. Some of you are new. You may not want to start out with 30 or 40 minutes of prayer. You may want to start with just 5 or 10 minutes, but talk to God. He is your Father. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew 6 and verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You start out by hallowing God's name. And then you may go right there, as Mr. Armstrong said, he often does, spend about one-third of his entire prayer, he said often, thanking and praising God. Thank you for my life. Thank you for this beautiful area. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my food. Thank you for my clothing. Thank you for my family. Thank you for the chance of knowing and serving you. Thank you for blessing the work. Thank you for the peace that we've had. Thank you for all the things. And you start to go down the line and thank and praise God for every good and every perfect gift and worship Him. And then you begin to confess your sins and ask Him to forgive you, to help you, to help you get the picture, to clean you up and scrub you out and make you like He is. Ask God's forgiveness and His cleansing through His Spirit. Then you begin to ask what you want. Well, please give me more of your Holy Spirit. Please give me more love and joy and peace and faith and wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Give me spiritual power to overcome myself, to overcome the world, to overcome Satan the devil and begin to talk to God about the needs. Ask Him to bless the church, bless the work, bless your particular area of the, of the work. You're, you're, if you're working in letter answering or you're working in mailing or whatever it is, ask God to bless your church back home. Ask God to bless your family. Ask God to bless your friends. And ask God to intervene powerfully and shake the nations and help them begin to wake up and know that God is real and begin to realize that He is there and to help us reach out to them so they can begin to know that there is a real God. And when we reach them with the truth, they'll be willing to listen. Ask God's blessing on the work and His power and talk to God about that. Discuss it with Him. Ask His help, ask His guidance, ask His intervention, and ask it fervently. God does not like sleepy time prayers. So if you get up and throw some cold water on your face, shave or do something, get awake, and then pray before anything else stops you. If you have a big breakfast, which I usually do, sometimes your blood is all down in your stomach digesting your food, and it's not up here where your brain should be working as you're praying. So it's best to pray early in the morning. Early in the morning. If you have to get a cup of coffee first, if your brain just don't work, we'll do that. But don't eat a big breakfast first. Each of you has to establish your own routine. But Jesus Christ back, said back, back in Matthew, as you know, 6 and verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So seek God's kingdom first. And one way to seek Him is in prayer. I seek you, O God, I seek for your Holy Spirit, your power, your love, your joy, your peace, your wisdom, your strength and self-control. Seek God with all your being. Start out the day that way and ask God for these aspects of His character, that He would put His character in you and fashion you and mold you and send Jesus to live within you so you can represent Him better. 
so you can be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, which Jesus said we all are to be back there in Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, he said. You are the light of the world. That's what we're supposed to be. We can't be like that unless we have Christ living in us. And we can only do that by having His Spirit and by seeking for His Spirit. So I know these men, Mr. Carl McNair and Mr. John O'Gwen, and most of our other fine ministers do that. And many of you do that, but many don't. I know you're weak. I've had weak moments in my life. We're not always batting 100%. And we've got to get back on the ball and get back to the closeness to God that we must have to be in God's family. To do that, brethren, we need to develop right habits. Please get that in your notes and in your mind. Character is not just a matter of habit. A lot of the world develop right habits, but it's a good tool to use to help you with the help of God's Spirit. If you, brethren, you sitting there in these seats right here, right now, and you, brethren, around the world, in your seats down in Perth, Australia, and Melbourne, and Sydney, and Adelaide, and down in South Africa, and all around the world, if you develop these habits, these habits can help you forever. One habit is to get up and start praying early in the morning, like Jesus did. Early in the morning, he got up and prayed to God. And you remember how that is in, I think, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. But early in the morning, while it was yet dark, he got up and prayed to God. That's the way Jesus started the day. And then he prayed throughout the day. We know that James prayed, and we know that I was trying to think of of, uh, David, prayed three times a day, evening, morning, and at noon, he said. And Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, he prayed to God three times a day. So it's good to pray in the morning. That can be your longer prayer for 30 or 40 minutes once you get used to it and are praying more and really know God and know what you're going to say. Then you can have a shorter prayer at noon and then maybe another medium-sized prayer at night before you go to bed or whenever. But evening, morning, and at noon, three times a day, renew that contact with your Creator. Break into this book by studying it regularly. Feed on Christ so you know this book. Because this book describes God's character. And God's character is specifically described, as I've said, in the Ten Commandments. To love God with all your heart and strength and mind. To worship Him. To have no other God before the true God. To make no idols or image of God. Not to be careless with God's name. And don't be around people who are cussing and using God's name in vain. That's really awful. Don't take God's name in vain or take it lightly. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God made it holy. And God asked you and me to keep holy this special time that He has made holy. To remind us who He is. He is the Creator. He is the one that gives us our life and breath. And the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that you may live long on the earth. Honor them. As you get to be an adult, you can't necessarily obey everything they tell you if they stay in the world and you have to come in the church or something like that, but you still honor the office that God has given them. And that honor goes right on back to God Himself. He is the ultimate Father. Honor your father and mother. Then thou shalt not kill. And Jesus magnified it. You're not only not to kill, you're not to hate. You're not to let the attitude of resentment and bitterness get in your mind, for if the attitude were 
perfect or the situation were perfect, I mean, you might actually hurt this other person or kill them. Don't let that attitude get control of your mind. Don't do that. Thou shalt not kill, and you're not even to hate, as Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 5, expounding it. You're not to kill. You're not to commit adultery. And Jesus said you're not only not to commit adultery, you're not even to look on a woman to lust for her. That is adultery in your mind. Once your mind starts down that direction, turn away. Say, God, help me. Get your mind on something else real quick. And you young men may have a battle with that. I used to. Just grab your mind. Help me, Father. Keep busy. I used to tell the guys to go out and run a few more laps around the track. Take cold showers. Ten, run around the track ten more times. But whatever it is. But pray most of all and ask God to, to, to grind that out. To blast that out of your brain. Don't lust. Don't let your mind wander down that direction. It will hurt you. It will kill you. Because it will keep you out of the kingdom of God. And keeping you out means eternal death in the lake of fire. Thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And thou shalt not lie. Don't bear false witness. God hates liars. He just hates everything that is a liar. They will not be in God's kingdom. Satan is a liar and the father of it. And God tells us to forsake that. If God can't trust what you're saying, can He trust you? What, brethren, if you could not trust what God says? God says, I'm promising you eternal life. And then right at the end, God says, Ha, big joke. It's all a big joke. I didn't mean it. Wow. You have got to show others that you stand for something. You stand behind your word. Don't lie. Don't exaggerate to where it could be taken as a lie. Don't do that, even if it makes you look better. Don't do that. Don't lie. And, of course, don't covet. You're not to lust for something that others have that is not yours. Their wife, their husband, their property, their money. Don't let your mind be on getting from others in the wrong way. Be a giver. Be a giver and not a getter. That shows the character of God. So think about that. Meditate on that as part of the basic explanation of character. And then you will be better off. So we all want to learn to develop the very character of God in that way. And seek first the kingdom of God and develop the habits, brethren, develop the habits of Bible study and fervent prayer, early prayer in the morning, of meditation. If you develop a habit of thinking about the Bible after you have studied it, if you develop the habit of taking extra time, perhaps on the Sabbath day, of literally setting out in a shaded place, if it's, you know, sunny or wherever it is comfortable, and a place where you can look up and see the trees and nature if you can, and think about God who made all that as you look up at the clouds of the sun. He's the creator. Why are you here? Why has God called you and not someone else? How far have you come in your Christian life? How can you do better? Meditate on all those things and meditate and let it program over and over in your mind on God's law. How can you better let God's law run and rule your life as a Christian, as a follower of Christ? So you want to meditate and you want to exercise the tool of fasting. And again, build the habit. Build the habit of fasting regularly. For many years of my life, decades, I've tried to fast once a month. I want to confess something so I don't appear to be a hypocrite. I, up until the, a very few years ago, I did that regularly, as my wife would tell you. My first wife and Cheryl, my recent wife. 
But with the stroke I had, the extra dizziness and weakness, I've cut it back to just, you know, two, two three, five times a, a, a year, not every month. And if you get older, have health problems, you don't have to fast every month. God only commands it once a year. But don't make excuses for yourself. I don't want to make excuses for myself, but I do want to fast enough that it becomes a regular thing that I do, you know, several times a year. Fast and seek God in extra Bible study and meditation and crying out to God during the time you're fasting for Him to fashion you and mold you and make you like He is. Those habits and walking with God is a habit all day long. Mr. Armstrong told me a number of times, he said, Rod, he says, I don't do it like I should, but when I get in a really bad situation, I will often pray 30 to 60 times a day. That's what he said, 30 to 60 times. And I could tell he meant it because he prayed to God all day long and asked God to help him, to, to correct him, to teach him, to strengthen him every, every 10 minutes or every hour or whatever it was. It had to be at least two or three times an hour all day long to talk to God, to have your hand in God's hand and be walking with Him. One key that I've often given you, brethren, is Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse. I hate to overuse it, but that certainly is a key, a very great key to having the character of God, where Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. The old self has to die. Nevertheless, I live. You're not fully dead, yet not I. And the Greek word that second time is ego, literally. Look it up in the Greek. Ego, it means the self, the, the, the self-will, the vain self, the old selfish self, not the ego, yet Christ lives in me. That's the key part of the verse. But Christ lives in me. Does Christ live in you? He then will help you develop true character because it will be His character God putting Christ's character in you by the Holy Spirit. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, we're still in the flesh, I live by the faith of. And the New King James has, that's one of the few places where the New King James is worse than the Old King James. The Old King James has it correct. Look it up in the Greek. I live with the faith of, not in, but the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So you live by His very faith, that total trust in God that comes from God through the Holy Spirit. So that's character. That's how you get character, by Christ living in you. But these other tools can help you toward that goal. Brethren, turn with me, if you would, now to Genesis chapter 18, back in your Old Testament. Turn back to Genesis. Genesis 18. And here, God is on the way in the person of Christ. This was Christ, obviously, appearing here to Abraham on the way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18 and verse 17 Genesis 18, verse 17. So these angels, two angels, plus the one who became Christ. It was obviously Christ there when you read the story carefully. Verse 18. Then the men arose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to, to send them on the way. He'd given them this meal. 
And the Lord said, and so the word Lord there is from the Yahweh, meaning Christ, the ever-living one, said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I'm going to use him so much, shall I hide from him what I'm going to do? For I have known him in order that he may command his children. Notice that. A strong, a man of strong character will lead his house and his children. Doesn't mean they'll all be perfect, but overall some of his children and his whole household will reflect that teaching. I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him and that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may not, may bring up to Abraham that which he's spoken. That God may give Abraham the great blessings of the whole world eventually. And the Eternal said, Because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is very great and sin is very grievous, I'm going to go down to them. And, of course, Abraham stood there before God when the men began to leave, or these other angels. And verse 23, notice verse 23. Here is Abram standing before the one that he knew. It shows here he knew who he was talking to. He was talking to God. He was talking to God in the, in the person of the Yahweh of the Old Testament. The voice, the, the spokesman, Abram came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous in the city. Would destroy all of them? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, notice, brethren, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He knew who he was talking to. He was talking to Yahweh, the ever-living one who represented the Father. Because Yahweh, the spokesman, was the one who spoke with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Yahweh was the one who spoke with Abraham. He was the one who spoke face-to-face with Moses and all that sort of thing. It was not God the Father, but the spokesman, Yahweh, the one who became God the Son, Jesus the Christ. Shall not the judge, isn't God going to judge the whole world through Christ? Remember John 5, verse 22, other scriptures tell us that. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Frankly, it took a lot of what? It took a lot of character. It took a lot of courage. He knew this being could just call down from higher. I'm tired of hearing you. Whoop, you're gone. <laughs> Your history. Because Yahweh could have done that. Abraham had deep feeling for human beings. Abraham had a good family overall. Abraham was head of his family. Abraham worked hard. He had hundreds, apparently, of, of men servants and maid servants when he went off to rescue his nephew Lot. He had 318 young men trained for war. In today's language, he was a multimillionaire or a billionaire. He had worked hard. He was a man of character. He was so deeply respected that when all he told all of his sons and his hired hands, Everybody's going to be circumcised. And that's what he did. They obeyed him. He had deep respect from those around him. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He loved his fellow human beings, in spite of the fact he was a great man, a good man, and a man of God. He challenged God on that. He said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God respected that. He knew that Abraham meant well by that. He didn't say, who do you think you are? You're just dust. I'll just vaporize you right now and teach you a lesson. 
No, God is a God of mercy. He knew Abraham's heart. Abraham was trying to serve God and also help his fellow man. He said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous, then I'll spare the city for their sake. Or later, 40, 30, 20, 10, as you know how the story is there, goes clear down to 10. And finally, Yahweh turns and goes his way, and Abraham does. And the next day, Sodom and Moab were destroyed by fire and brimstone. There weren't even ten righteous men there. They'd become so totally polluted, the children, the animals, everything was burned up. Their whole society was rotten. I know we don't like to think of it that way, but our society is beginning to be like that. If you look on the inside of the today's local paper, Charlotte Observer, it shows you how the number of people who read and believe the Bible is getting less and less, and now it's down to only about one out of four who really believe that the Bible, or one out of five, I guess they said, is really inspired of God. Oh, about one out of five anymore really believe the Bible is inspired and, and, and uh, inerrant, in a sense, believe it really means what it says. It's getting less and less and less. Far more believe that when I was growing up than it shows far more believe that even back in the 1970s. It's getting less and less. How could they say it's okay for men to marry men? If they didn't take this book and say, you know, so so and so with the Bible, we're just throwing the Bible in the trash can. They don't believe in this book. They have no respect for this book in this country. You know that. I hope you know it. And Almighty God is going to say at some point, that's enough. And He's going to pull the plug. It's not going to be tomorrow or next year, but sometime within the next 7 to 17 years about. And I can't be dogmatic. We've been wrong before, but I would feel stronger now than ever on that with all the things happening in maybe 8 or 10 or 12 more years when a great tribulation is suddenly going to hit us and going to shake us till our teeth rattle. And some of us, if we have the character of God, we're going to be willing to stand up and do what God says, even if they start to yell at us, to threaten us, to throw us in jail or whatever. We will say, I will trust God. I know God is real and I'm going to obey the God of the Bible. You will have character. You will be the winners. The ones who follow the easy way, who go along with the beast and the false prophet and take the mark of the beast, they're going to be cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. But the ones who have God's character and trust God will live forever. Mr. Sean Dumas was talking about the reward ratio. Well, the reward ratio, however, he put it, it's pretty good if you obey God, you live forever. But there is another side, and people have to understand that other side. The other side is not just a spanking or taking away your visiting privileges. The other side is being blotted out for all eternity in a lake of fire. God wants us to be in His family. He loves us. He's made us in His image. He does not want us to play games and water things down and try to sneak around and get our own way. That is not character. Character is what you do when no one else is looking as one person's definition. That's a very limited definition, but God is always looking. God is always looking. So we deeply want to understand that. And so Abraham had this outflowing concern to reason with God because he loved God and all of his fellow human beings. Now you turn back to Genesis, if you would, to chapter 22. Genesis 20, chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. 
Remember, brethren, Abraham is the father of the faithful. Why? And said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, his only legitimate son, Isaac, whom you love. And Abraham apparently did have a very special love for Isaac. Mr. Herbert Armstrong had a very special love for his first son, Richard David Armstrong, and it was remarkable. And I lived to see it. I won't describe it a whole lot, but he did have a special love for that one son he'd waited for years to have and finally had one son, and he really loved that son. And Abraham must have loved Isaac like that, whom you love in a special way. Take him and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham what? He said, well, I don't understand, God. That's pretty, that's pretty awful. I don't agree with you. You're being mean. I don't think you're very thoughtful. You're very politically incorrect. It's not politically correct to have people go kill their son. You know what I mean? They didn't have that attitude at that time. They knew God. And Abraham especially knew God. He had walked with God, talked with God. He knew that that was God speaking. I want to let you know that. If one of us tells you to go kill your son or this or that, don't do it unless you know that God himself has made it very clear. But it was very clear to Abraham that this was God speaking. Very clear. So Abraham arose early. He didn't wait. He went immediately to do what God said. He had the deep awe of that being and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men, and Isaac his son in the wood, and they went there. And later on, Isaac asked, What's happening? Where's the offering? And Abraham said, God will provide his own offering, and so on. And so they came to the place in verse 9, and Abraham built an altar, verse 9 now, and there, and placed the wood in order, bound Isaac. This tells you something, too. Isaac, as you know, if you've read books about it, even the Protestants realize this. It's true to, to a degree. Everything's a limited degree. But Isaac, in a general way, was a type of Christ. He was the special son who was offered up. And he was so dedicated, Christ was willing to give his life. He knew in advance what was going to happen. And Isaac was so dedicated as a young man, perhaps. He was not a little boy. He may have been at least 14 or 16 years old. Some Jews say 14, the age they have their confirmation or whatever some say 20 years old we don't know but if he was 14 years old even or 20 and your father tells you turn around i'm going to have to tie you up what do you do most young men would hit their father and run real quick or do everything whatever you know that so abraham was able to tie his son up there wasn't any wrestling match going on laid him on the altar up on the wood and Abraham stretched out his knife and took the knife to slay his son. He must have been trembling. He must have been having cold sweat go down his back thinking, What is this? I don't understand this. I'll do it anyway. Please help me, God. Please help me. And right then this voice comes out, Stop! Don't touch the lad. And then he obeyed God then, of course. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, verse 20, or do anything, for now I know... That is very important, as you've heard me describe it in that way so many times. Now I know. Does God, can He say that about you? Now I know that you, John Jones, or Mary Smith, sitting in this audience, or you brethren over in London, or South Africa, or Toronto, wherever you are, that now I know that you fear God. You have the awe of God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Then Abraham lifted up his eyes, and they found this ram to be the sacrifice. And then the angel called the angel of the Lord, who must have been Christ, the spokesman, a second time, and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Eternal, verse 16, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants, the stars of heaven. As we heard in the opening prayer, and we sang in the opening psalm, God bless America, America the beautiful, from sea to shining sea. God has given us this magnificent land, and we had 238 years as of yesterday that God has given us most of it, a time of peace and safety. When I was growing up, the greatest war in history was raging. But I was there in Joplin High School, and we had our dances, and we had our big special end-of-the-year dance in the Connor Hotel on the, on the, up on the 14th floor Rift Garden. The Hotel Connor in Joplin, Missouri, at the crossroads of the nation, the announcer said. Joplin was the crossroads of the nation. Every city has to call itself something. So we were the crossroads of the nation because Highway 71 was coming down from Chicago to New Orleans, and Highway 66 crossed down from uh, Chicago, I should say, then all the way to L.A. But anyway, so that made us the crossroads of the nation. We had our dances and parties, and we were having fun. And kids our age were being burned alive in Hitler's ovens. And we didn't really understand it. It was over there. And we heard more about it once the war ended. And President Eisenhower went over and went into one of those concentration camps. And he got so mad, they said he bit his nails, he yelled, stomped, and he cussed quite a bit. He was not converted yet, but it made him furious what was happening to these human beings. He saw these men and women coming out and their skin hanging down and great piles of corpses of those who were already dead just piled up, piled up, corpses everywhere. Many Americans did not realize how bad it was. We've been blessed. For 238 years. But we're turning away from God. We're watering down this attitude of loving God. Walking with God. Serving God. And fearing. Having the awe and respect. Honor your father and mother. God is our ultimate father. And we do not honor him at all in this nation. So he's going to pull the plug. But Abraham gave us. Or God gave us. Because of Abraham's obedience. He gave his descendants as the sand of the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And it says over in chapter 24, if you want to write it down, Genesis 24 and verse 60, it says gates, plural. Over in England, Mr. Armstrong said it before it happened. He said, if you British people don't turn back to obey God and serve Him, he says He's going to take away your sea gates one by one. And Mr. Armstrong mentioned the Suez Canal. I remember, and he mentioned, I'm sure, one or, he mentioned two or three. I can't remember them all. I'm sure he mentioned the Panama Canal. After that, that very year and a half later, I went over there with Jim's mother. And during that very time, the winter of 56, 57, the Suez Canal was gone. Britain had to give it up. Soon after that, the Panama Canal was gone. The Bob el was gone. The southern entrance to the Red Sea the great sea gate around the tip of South Africa, the Simons' base was gone, and Singapore and the Malacca states were gone. One after the other after the other, about eight out of the ten great sea gates were gone. Now only two are left. Only two are left out of the ten. 
Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands, and every month or two they have articles showing out that they're in danger. They may be gone, too, in another couple of years. We'll see. I'm not saying Mr. Armstrong didn't say he'd take away them all, but he said many of them will be taken. Specific things affecting hundreds of millions of people, affecting hundreds of millions of dollars of commerce. And in times of war, vital sea gates were given because of Abraham's obedience, plus our great nation, plus a multitude of people like the sand of the sea, plus America's great natural blessings from sea to shining sea. And you find that described back in Genesis 49, how great we would be and we would be given the high places of the earth. And God did that because this man was willing to have what? Character. He had character. He had the character of God. And he walked with God, talked with God. He did whatever God said. And he obeyed God from the heart. And I'll tell you, he is made then the father of the faithful for a reason. And undoubtedly, Abraham had a lot of very, very good habits along the way. Can God trust you to do whatever he says? I hope he can. Can the church, brethren, the church is the body of Christ. Can the church trust you to do, to be loyal and to obey and to serve God? And God speaks through the church. If we do something directly contrary to God's law, tell us about it. But as long as within the law, Mr. Armstrong told me back in 1954, I'm going to send you over to Europe with Dick. Well, that was good. I didn't argue. But a little bit later, a couple of years later, I was just married, and Margie was already president with Elizabeth, pregnant with Elizabeth. She was having a baby. And Mr. Armstrong said, I want to send you over to England. Well, I said, well, no, we can't go over there. That's not convenient now because my wife's pregnant. No, we didn't say a word. My wife, Margie, was a farm girl, Carl McNair's older sister, very dedicated. We just said, yes, sir, and we went to England. It worked out fine. And Elizabeth was born in London, right there in South Kensington. I'd take her back to where she was born. A few years later, in between, we have Michael out in La Cunada. And a few years later, we were sent back to England. Was it convenient? No, Margie was pregnant again, this time with my son Jim sitting right here. And we were sent to England. We didn't say, no, we can't go. We said, no, that's, he, he really needed me there to have campaigns and to start the churches. He said, Rod, the county council has let us have the variance so we can build these buildings for the college. And pretty soon they're going to wonder what all this college is about. I said, it's to train ministers. They said, we only have one church. We've got to get more than one church. So he asked me to start the churches in Bristol, Birmingham, and Manchester with campaigns four nights, five nights a week you know, for four weeks each. So I preached 60 sermons in a row, plus on the Sabbath, about 65 or 68 sermons in, in a two-month period, night after night after night, or about a three-month period, I should say. And I didn't complain. I thought it was good. We built the work. We got it started over there. But we have had many men, whoever you say, they'll just go and do it. John O'Gwen was like that. He would do anything and go anywhere. Carl Manier went here and there. So many others have done the same thing, have been willing to give up, to travel, to change, to work, to work hard, even when it's not convenient. So develop that character where you are trusted. You can be trusted by God. You can be trusted by church, which is the bride of Christ and which is the body of Christ. Can the church trust you to be loyal, to obey, to serve, to be clean? Can all of you be clean where you won't be committing a fornication? You won't be committing adultery. You won't be getting drunk. You won't be stealing or lying. 
character is doing what God says and building the habit of that through Christ in you. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1, brethren. Ephesians chapter 1. Here I'm just reviewing what I just said in one sense. In Ephesians chapter 1, describing how God has done, showed His great power through Christ in verse 19, when He raised Christ from the dead, verse 20, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, He seated Christ far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Christ has given awesome power and glory forever. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head. Christ is, wasn't the head. He is now the acting head over all things to the church. He's the head of the summer camp. He's the head of the church administration. He's the head of the finances. He is head of every aspect of the church overall. The church, which is His body. When He was on earth, He had a physical body. Today, He works through our body collectively. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. So, this is the church of God. And I hope all of us can understand that and want to be part of it and want to show God that we are a really part of it and be loyal member, a loyal member and trustworthy and build character in that way and show God we have character in that way. Chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner, Paul had a ball and chain between his ankles, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in lowliness, bearing with each other in love. You rub each other the wrong way sometimes. I know that. Forgive each other. That's one of the main things. You've got to forgive one another as God forgave you in Christ. Forgive each other. Get over it. Use the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, to help you do that. And keep the unity. We want unity, not splits. God doesn't want that. Does He want a bunch of people who are ready to split to cause division? No. Keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you ever find yourself in a wrong church that does not have the Spirit guiding it, get out. But if you're in the church of God that does have the Spirit of God, you better build unity in that church. There is one body... One Spirit, as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one basic approach to God, and we don't have it perfectly, but most of you know we have it here in this church overall, and we're growing in it. Down in verse 11, Christ Himself gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So he gave these offices in the ministry. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, so to build up the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You talk about character. We're to grow spiritually through Christ in us in every aspect of our lives. The way we love and take care of our wives, our husbands, our children, our neighbors, our jobs. We treat our employers. We treat our employees. 
We treat everyone around us and we worship God and we act and grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, character, Christ living within us. Now, brethren, turn, if you would, back to the book of Revelation. Back to the book of Revelation. And notice back here in Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. I used this in a different setting a few weeks ago, but it's very important here too. Revelation 21, verse 7. He who overcomes, will you overcome and build the very character of God and develop that through Christ in you, shall be inherit all things, the entire universe. Wow. And I will be his son and he shall be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, Are you afraid of things all the time or can you put your trust in God? He doesn't want cowards. The cowardly, the unbelieving, you're always doubting something. Murders, sexually immoral, young people that are kissing and petting and committing fornication and so on. Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. God does not want liars in His kingdom. That is very important. Always tell the truth. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Is that what we want? I don't think we do. That's a powerful imperative to do the right. Resist the wrong and do the right. Then it says over in chapter 22, verse 12. Revelation 22, verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly. Brethren, Christ is coming quickly, and certainly on this generation. And my reward is with me to give everyone according to what? His works. What do you do? Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's not just an empty faith. You do what God says according to His works. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do a way of life based on God's character. Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside, those who are not willing to develop God's character are dogs, many male prostitutes and people that are practicing, of course, homosexuality, sorcerers, sexually immoral, and whoever loves and practices a lie. People that can't be trusted, they practice a lie. They pretend one thing and do another and so on. Blessed are those that do God's commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. You want life. I want life. We don't want to be lowered into the grave in a casket and stay there forever or be put later in a lake of fire. We want to live forever. So we must yield to God. We must cry out to God, walk with God, talk with God, and ask Christ to live His life within us. And just beseech God to develop within us the very character of Christ. That Christ may fully live within us. That we may fully exemplify Christ and God in everything we think and say and do. Will we be perfect in it tomorrow? No. No, we won't. I never have been. Mr. Armstrong never was. No human being ever was except Jesus. But we should do that more and more. We're to grow in grace that that whole character of Christ and in knowledge. And we're to grow under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Build God's character, brethren. There are tremendous rewards 
in the end, we win. You're called to do that. God will give you the tools to do that. I've tried to give you some more tools to do that today and show you how. Do it and live forever.